Hello and welcome to the Diabetes Dugout with Brighty and Peachy, brought to you by the Diabetes Football Community. This is your regular dose of all things football and diabetes as we bring you the stories of those affected by the condition who have a love of the sport. Everything we share and talk about on this podcast is from personal experience and if you have any concerns about the management of your condition, you should always check in with a healthcare professional. Now, with all that said, let's crack on with the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Diabetes Dugout. Joining me today, as always, my co-host, Mr Chris Bright. And we've got a special one today, haven't we, Brighty? We have indeed, Mr Peach. And uh, thank you for the warm welcome, as always. Um, as always. We, as always. Um, on today's episode, we are going to be talking a little bit around World Diabetes Day. Obviously a really important day in the calendar. I would say maybe more more important than Christmas, John, would you say? Or up there with importance, I'd, do you think? I'd say, I'd say it's up there, definitely. It's got to be up there, hasn't it? So, yeah, we're going to be sharing a little bit around that. We're also going to be talking about the Diabetes Awareness Month in general, which is obviously the full length of November. We'll talk a little bit around what we've been up to or what we're going to be up to as part of that. Um, but also, for the first time on the Diabetes Dugout, John, we're going to be talking about our stories. So on this episode, it isn't going to be the stories of our guests. It's actually going to be us talking about our stories. So really excited, actually, for us to delve into each other's stories, John. I know we will have heard them probably played out in different places before, but it's going to be nice to actually be able to pose you a few questions, mate, and and, and listen and have a conversation, which I hope will be impactful and meaningful to those that are going to be listening about our stories so shall we kick off then with a little bit about your diagnosis story then John so talk to me a little bit about when it was how it came about and those sort of first memories that you had of being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes yes I was obviously being the youngster that I am October 1986 so I've just, just reached my 35-year anniversary this year. Congratulations. Um, wow. 35 years, level 35, mate. It is. It's a, it's a bizarre thing because I got the date wrong. <laughs> and it was only when my mum messaged me and said, um, so a happy anniversary or it was something along the lines of, I remember the day 35 years ago well. And I said, oh, I didn't think it was today. And she said, oh, no, that date is ingrained in my memory. And it just that just made me think. And it was like I, I, we've talked about it so many times on the podcast. And, and, I, and I've said that I consider myself incredibly lucky to have got it or to have been diagnosed as a five year old. Um, so I've never known any different from from memory from my life. But for my parents, thinking a similar vein to you growing up with them having to make all those decisions, with them having to be responsible for, for carb counting, for injecting, for sorting out my highs, my lows, for making sure that every kid's party I went to, that if I was going to eat, they knew the how many carbohydrates there was going to be there for getting me to and from football with, with correct 
um, amounts of uh, refueling if I was going to need it. I think we got to give a big shout out to the parents oh, of those with, with type 1 diabetes. You know, it's a heavy burden to carry, isn't it? And I think they do it with so much love and care and, and the way that they just go about it as though it was something that they have almost embraced. They almost yeah. now just know it as no different and they just smash it. So big shout out to all of the parents out there that are supporting somebody living with type one or, or have done that in the past. So, yeah, I, I think you're right, John. They do so much in, in the way of great work and, and support for us at, at such a young age. So did you feel that they felt a big impact then, John? Like, did they um, or does your mum now talk to you about how she actually felt at the start rather than obviously she wouldn't have talked about that when you were a child, but yeah. how she actually feels now looking back or what those feelings were for her at the time? Yeah, well, I think it's that, um, it's a bizarre one because I, I, well, I've i had conversations with mum and dad about it. Um, and But it's that thing of going, that, that there's a part of me that really wants to know. And there's also a massive part of me that doesn't because the there's that bit of guilt that I still feel for having changed their lives so much for for so many years and with all the hospital appointments with all the them sort of being responsible them um I remember the, the, the first time I, I went hypo in the middle of the night that we were on holiday and they had to call out an ambulance but we were staying in a place I mean we Again, you won't remember this time, but mid eighties, late eighties, sorry, it was. I think we're um, staying in this resort, and there's um, there's no phone in the house because you didn't necessarily have phones in a holiday house back then. They couldn't wake the the owners. It was I don't even know what time it was in the in the middle of the night. So we had to drive down to a public phone box. Um, they didn't know what was going on because why would they? They obviously they knew I was diabetic because I've been for a while. Um, but that first experience of that hypo and all I remember of it is me being there and just seeing seashells. And that's all I could see. So all my vision was doing and I couldn't talk. Um, I couldn't say anything. I couldn't communicate what was wrong. Um got the ambulance out, ambulance came, took me to hospital, middle of the night. Um, I, I, I can't remember completely what, if the, the, if the um, call handler said, um, if they asked the questions about being diabetic and, and, and they gave me something. Um, but further on down the line, having the um, glucagon injections. Do you ever have those? Yes. So oh. I'm not sure, I'm not sure I've ever had to have a glucagon injection we've carried it throughout my life it's always been a part of the fridge if you like and yeah. we've taken it away with us as a family when i've been abroad or when we've been away and we you know you're just being prepared aren't you and but i've only ever had touch wood and i am touching the desk so I'm, hopefully that's made of wood um yeah let's touch the head as well <laughs> but um yeah I've only had one occurrence where I've not been able to treat myself with a low blood glucose level. And it was very much a similar experience to what you described there, John, like that, 
where you you sort of there in the room and you sort of there seeing things hearing things but you just can't do anything you're literally it, it's like an out of body experience because your being if you like your soul your of who you are is there in the room mm. but your body if you like your vessel that makes you move around life just isn't responding so you can't move you can't do anything about it you're moving I, like i'm moving but i'm not voluntarily moving yeah. I, that's not my choice how i'm moving i'm actually just in a fit so but my brain if you like is sort of there sort of watching what's happening and it's a, a frightening experience similar I think to yours, John, in terms of being like away on holiday as well to that one mm -hmm. anyway for yourself. But yeah, it's, um, I never had to do glucagon. I think what they, my mom and dad did at the time was rub, you know, like the gel. It's, yeah. Yeah. The hyperstock gel. Into gel. The gums. Yeah. Into the gums. Oh. And yeah, it was, it was nasty it was, tasting. Oh, it was Ugh. absolutely. Do you know, I, I used oh. to, I, I used to, my, my nighttime hypos, I used to go paralyzed down one side of my body whoa and i couldn't it was really bizarre and all i could do was scream out mum and dad would come in was this all they, your is this not not been all your life was this like a no, you, a youth thing or did you yeah. grow out grow oh yeah out yeah, yeah I grew out of it yeah wow yeah yeah it was um that they'd come in give me the injection and then i would by the following morning i would be throwing up and that was sort of the the, the, the pattern that it followed so i knew that if I'd had that injection in the night, I wouldn't be in school the next day and I would be feeling rough properly, just absolutely wiped out. Um, I, I don't think they lasted too many years from memory, but I'd have to ask my mum and dad. Um, don't really, don't really know, but it was, yeah, I, I'd just wake up in the night, no warnings. And it could be, it, it wouldn't necessarily be related to what my blood sugar was at bedtime. I mean, Back then, you wouldn't have necessarily done your blood sugar at bedtime. There was no sort of do your your eight, your ten, your blood sugars a day. And I mean, if you, if you went to bed and it was seven, well, nowadays you'd look at an arrow, and if it's a downward pointing arrow on your CGM, you know, right? Do you know what? I probably need to have something. Um, whereas then seven just meant seven. So, yeah, it was. How far we've come, John? How oh, far we've come, mate? Absolutely, absolutely crazy. Mm. But yeah, it's they, those those hypos were a, a long-lasting memory. Did you have many where you needed support or you needed assistance? Was there many of those when you were growing up? Obviously, I said I got I had one where it happened. I, how, did you go through a few, or was it a rare occurrence? Or I, I think it was rare. Yeah, and it was it was in the night. I think I remember having two um, during the the day. One, I was in school um, and I was just, I was trying to write and all I was doing was scribbling on my book. And I, I, I don't know why it had happened. Um, this was, I was 11 at the time and just scribbling my book, trying to make sense of anything that was happening. The girl sat next to me, just looking at my work, going, writing's improved a bit. Um, <laughs> Arguably, John, it's still better than how you write now, yeah, isn't it? I was going to say, my artwork's got 
no artwork hasn't got better than that <laughs> um and then one of my mates sat behind me I, I was just trying to turn around and get his attention and i think eventually he clocked that there was something wrong and alerted the teacher and they got me down to the school office and and got my mum in um and then another time my mate was round and again it was probably a similar age and we were with my nan mum and dad were out um I think it must have been school holidays it was during the day and I just remember having an argument with him and I remember sort of being a bit rude to him but not in my head I'm going what are you doing um and then as he went to leave I just tripped over the step or just fell to the step and smashed my knees on the floor and I think then he suddenly realized it's like you sort of put two and two together but again that, that whereas now friends would be educated in it back then I, I don't necessarily know how much education my mates would have had I mean you, you think about now you you go out with your mates your your teammates from from futsal um your, your mates from uni they know about diabetes because either you tell them or it's more out there you, you have characters in soaps now who are diabetic you hear um it talks about on the radio on, on phone-ins um whereas back then people didn't really know a massive amount about it i don't think no, I don't think they did. Um, I think it's got better, hasn't it, in terms of the awareness side of things. Um, obviously, we touched on a little bit there around your uh, younger days, John, talking a little bit about hypos. I always felt like, I don't know about you, but I always felt like the hypos were scarier in the night as well. Like they were yeah. they were more disarming, a bit more disabling and a bit yeah. more frightening, to be honest. I always felt the ones when I was awake, I had more control around and that one that I was, I needed assistance when I was a teenager, I was actually asleep. It was like early in the morning. So it was like me supposedly supposed to be waking up, obviously never did wake up. So, um, yeah, I always felt like there was a lot more fear and the hypos when we didn't have CGMs and, and alarms telling us what's going on, the, the hypos, you would wake up almost at the last point that your body is allowing you to to be able to do something about it before yeah. like it's it's in a really bad place like where we're not waking up so I always I don't know about you but I was in the night and I'd obviously when I was younger when we had less um let's call it let's less appropriate insulin maybe in terms of the way that it works now obviously yeah. it was mixture insulin back then and now we've got this basal bolus for me on injections and yourself in terms of your pump where it works more with lifestyle which is why yeah. i use the word appropriate because it kind of helps us you know blend with our lives whereas then it wasn't in that way it, it sort of it was cumbersome it was like fitting in really and yeah. you were having to structure around it and i always felt that 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 caused the issues really in, in the way that you approached it and it and whilst i was on that I think I had more scary hypos, to be honest, than than I did later. So, um, yeah, those middle of the night ones, waking up in pools of sweat and just yes. like shaking, and all you can think of is like, where is the food? And you know, I would get out. Of, I remember getting out of bed a few times as a kid, 
and I'm literally I'm I'm swaying on the landing right like to go and wake up my parents because my eyesight's going all funny like yeah. I'm getting green and like purpley splurges in my eyes I can't really see and I'm going I just need to get into my parents' room because they need to do something about this as well. Because if I just try and tackle it, I might not make it. So I remember a few of them. I remember one time shouting as well, or a couple of times having to scream because I'm like, I can't even get out of bed properly. Mm. So they're the nighttime ones. And I, th- I don't know what it is. I, I feel like they were also when you're a bit younger. Well, I don't know. That was just my experience. I tended to have those more when I was younger. Now I've got a lot more knowledge about how to manage things. I also got the technology really, which is yeah. the key thing in, in helping us. And also a key part of what we're, you know, they're talking about for World Diabetes Day this year is the the, the impact that um, technology is having now and why we should gain now more access and why people with diabetes should have that access. And for me, what a game changer it's been and i think it's for those reasons john you know we we're talking about they're really dangerous things that have happened to us scary mm-hmm. things horrible hypos and now i won't talk for you on this but i feel that i've got a far greater grasp of situations for hypos and i feel a lot more in control as well as a lot of, it feels a lot easier to go to sleep at night knowing that you've got something that's going to catch you if you fall in the middle of the night, so to speak. And that's what I feel that technology is now giving us. It's like a really strong safety blanket in lots of different circumstances. And uh, that's what it always makes me think of now using continuous glucose monitoring. Obviously it's had a huge impact on me in terms of sport um, and how I've managed to manage for that, but actually just the safety side of things, John, and as a kid, those were some of the scariest moments actually living with diabetes. I mean, can you imagine if you were to be guided, like if you were to go back to when you were done, because you were not too dissimilar age, were you? Were you nine? Uh, yeah, tiny bit older. I was almost nine, so I was eight. So I would have been, yeah, three years older than when you were diagnosed, John, I think. So, yeah, yeah it was a... Uh, yeah scary i knew life without it john so i have vague and i'm not sure about your memories of life without it whether you've got any at all but i had i've got a few of life without it i always remember um and this is just a weird one but this is something that sticks in my head i always remember going to my nans and my nan would always buy these haribo like the 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 bears you know like the the golden bears and she would always buy those. And we would always be given like a couple of packets, right? Me and my sister. And we took them away on holiday. And I always remember wanting them and, and enjoying them wherever we went when we saw my nan and granddad, for example. But I remember those disappearing. And it's one of those things, I guess, where it's like a, a before and after, you know, how life changes as a result. Um, but just things like that, which, which are there. But I don't have lots of memories luckily i think of um life without it because i think once you just set in a routine and you kind of get going and, and you just life is always been this way or it feels like it because you haven't got too many other memories i think it's a little bit easier to cope well that's how it feels anyway to me but yeah diagnosed in 1999 probably similar symptoms to so many people you know the thirsty 
which is the you know those key four T's, which I think we should highlight as well on this podcast, especially for anyone that's potentially seeing things in other people around them, maybe that might be undiagnosed type one diabetes. But I was thirsty, which is one of them. I was definitely more tired. I was definitely needing the toilet more and I was dropping weight. So I was getting thinner, but they were only happening slowly. So the buildup of needing more and more fluid was happening slowly. The weight coming off me was small and, and, and not lots and lots. And it's probably as a result of being so active. I was a kid that just used to run around like crazy all the time. And I'd be outside playing football from, you know, it was the summer holidays at the back end of the summer yeah. holidays. So I probably was out all day, you know, doing 10 hours outside, running around. Um, the sun was out, you know, that masks some of the drinking side of things. It was hot. It was warm. I'm drinking lots more. So you kind of masks a few of the symptoms by being an active kid running around in the sort of... Um, in the sum, the summer sun. So, um, yeah, it was a like you, John. Really, uh, it's never a nice time. I do remember the the week that I was in hospital. I remember the reaction of my parents or my mum in particular, who got quite upset with uh, the diagnosis in the GP surgery. I've spoken about it a few few times, to be honest, on different uh, media outlets whether it's podcasts or on the um on blogs but it's um it's never nice seeing that and it just it sticks with you um that week is probably the only time where i've got lots of memories of something that happened under the age of 10 and that says enough about what it's like to be diagnosed with a lifelong chronic illness um at that age because you vividly don't remember too many things under the age of 10 but vividly remember how the hospital looked I remember the hospital school I remember the moment in the GP surgery I remember um, being finger pricked in the middle of the night by the nurses that were coming around I remember being on a drip I remember people coming to visit me John these things right you don't remember those of any other situation under the age of 10, you will barely remember that stuff now, obviously, at our ripe old age. But those are... Uh, did, did you just put us in the same bracket when you well, said our age? Well, we're in two, two just ever so slightly different brackets, John. <laughs> well, I mean, we're about a decade apart, but I won't let any, you know, we won't let any, any more secrets into our age. But You um, don't look 10 years older. <laughs> oh, very good, John, very good. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, it was a, it was one of those weeks. And I think you, you, with diagnosis, I think lots of people talk about that. It's just a, a harrowing memory, really, that you are dealt with that. And um, I think for me, I've talked about it many times about, you know, the, the week that followed it in terms of getting back to my first football match, showing that diabetes wasn't going to stop me from doing the things that I love doing and just sort of trying to get back onto what I wanted to do and, you know, it's been the way that we talk about the condition now, isn't it, John? And a lot of what we do with the diabetes football community is sort of bringing diabetes along for the ride with us and ensuring mm-hmm. that, you know, we offer support, education to allow that to happen for people that are involved and, and those that want to get involved in the future. We're just trying to make sure as many people 
continue to do the thing that they enjoy doing in football as possible whilst living with the condition. And that was my mantra, if you like, from the very start is that Chris, you are going to continue to enjoy what you do. You're going to continue to play that sport. Hopefully you'll be able to do well in it, but that was the, the thinking at the start and, you know, diagnosis is, is, is rough for anyone, but yeah, those, as we talked about those, those younger years, were especially tough because I think the the insulins were just so variable and it caused moments like we've spoken about in terms of hypos that are just so disabling. Can you remember the insulin you were on? Do you remember what it was called? Oh, I th- oh let me, has it mixed hard 30 maybe? Something like that. Um, again, I remember it used to sting a little as well. And I also remember that we used to have to inject it within a half an hour window yeah, and it would always be at the same time. So, and you would always need to eat at the same yeah. times. Um, so that always caused a bit of a problem actually at school because they would be like the school uh, lunch hour is different. So, or it's moving or they're shuffling it and you're going, uh, 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 miss, I actually need to eat and the lunch hour is not at the same time it used to be. And, this is going to cause me a problem. I remember all of that. And we had to negotiate that and, and talk yeah. through that. And so I think sometimes I had to leave lessons a little early to go to dinner because we were concerned that actually my insulin might kick in for lunch a little early yeah. and I haven't eaten. So that's what we're talking around for mix your insulin. It's not like it, it is in these days for most people. And then and, when and you want two at two a day. Yeah. Two then, a day. Yeah. So breakfast and so it would have been for breakfast and then eat at the same time. Yeah. And then it would have been for dinner. Yeah. And that always caused a bit of a challenge as well when you're trying to plan things or you like for me as a kid trying to go around to friends' houses, they would be like panic central. They're like, oh, we need to get food done for this time. And yeah. there was always this like structure and it always felt regimented. And I always felt people were people didn't people don't like their routine being dictated to them. And uh, we you know, I was living a different world and a different life to so many other kids around me that I had that different routine and that different structure. And um, yeah, people had to try and find a way to to almost allow me in um, through adhering to my structure, really. And, and that was schools had to do it as well, as much as as people, you know, for for going around for somebody's going around somebody's house for dinner or whatever, or, and, and to play out with your mates. It was a uh, yeah, that makes you. So I was going to say that that half hour window one is one of my most vivid memories. We'd um, gone out for a meal with my mum and dad. I have a feeling it was we were away on holiday again and we'd ordered the food, explained diabetic as, as they always would. 30 minutes, yeah, inject. Like the half hour passes food doesn't come 40 minutes food doesn't come dad goes up um just want to check just go oh yeah yeah it'll be there in a couple of minutes 50 minutes still hasn't come go back up yeah yeah really sorry no the hour comes yeah food still hasn't come oh and, how many of you out of those as well John, oh, in your life where the, the, the panic sets in because yeah. you might have injected and you might have anticipated because most restaurants, to be honest, get your food out in like 15, 20 minutes yeah. everywhere you go now, these days anyway. But 
you might have anticipated that and gone, ah, do you know what? I'm going to be trying to be smart here. I don't want my levels to go up too high. Um, I'm not going to wait for till the food comes. Yeah. And then you have it too early and then it just time disappears and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to be in a real problem in a minute. And I, I tend to err on the side of caution where unfortunately when I'm out for food, I'll always inject when it arrives. Now that isn't the best thing, but I need to know portion sizes and I, yeah. and I never know what they're going to provide in terms of restaurant portion sizes. I need to know the carbs that are going to be on that plate. Um, I need to have some confidence that actually the food's there and I'm not going to have injected too early that then causes me a hypo. So I'd rather go slightly high for like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes and then watch it come back down rather than risk it for a hypo and um, yeah. And getting all the carbs and portion sizes wrong just by gambling. But that's caused me, like you said, John, that's caused me some problems in the past and the mixture insulin. Well, you've got to just inject in that half an hour window and you're just saying, and you're praying that they get the food out on time. Yeah. Yeah. I think I I think that I see I'm similar in terms of that those worries but being on the pump and it, it taking that little bit longer for me i'm um i sometimes gamble a bit and go well i'm gonna so if, if, if we've gone out and um i'm having steak and chips i might go right i'm gonna have I, i'll do myself 40 50 grams of carbohydrate now because the chips are going to be at least that and then when they come out I'll go, right, do you know what? It's That looks about 80, 90 grams worth. So just give myself another 40 grams worth of insulin. But I've had times where I've gone, right, at least in the, in the younger years, um, where you're sort of, you're on your own, like mum and dad aren't there. You're, you're trying to prove, yep, yeah, I can do it. And you go, right, I'm going to do this. or And then the food comes out and you're going, oh, that's nowhere near the size I'd imagined it. Um, or, oh no, I've, I've got that. I've done my calculations wrong. Yeah. And it just, just absolutely throws you on that. I remember once my, um, my mum cooking a, a cauliflower cheese for me for dinner. Absolutely loved it, but did my injection because you would. And then it was suddenly we got to the point where we were going, actually what carbs is there in cauliflower cheese? And it's the flour and a bit of milk. And that's it. And all of a sudden, it's I've eaten this massive cauliflower cheese. Absolutely loved it. My mom's cauliflower cheese was amazing. Um shout out Peachy's mom's cauliflower yes. cheese. <laughs> whoop, whoop. I don't know if she's asked, did it? <laughs> well, she's going to, to now, John. She's going say. to now, John, after <laughs> she's listened to this episode. Just I, I think I think this scarred her because we then went, we've injected for. 60 grams of carbohydrate for dinner we're at about 20 grams at the moment so although you're absolutely full you're gonna have to have a couple of slices of toast or some weetabix something like that and i'm just there going i i I can't eat anything more and that and that john is exactly how it started for me is that you we injected the same amounts of insulin yeah which meant that you ate or had to try and eat 
whatever you did, wherever you were, you had to try and eat similar amounts yeah. and portions to to just make sure you were in an okay level. And that didn't allow for any changes. So my yeah. life was so routine and the foods I would eat would be on repeat so much as a youngster because it was the only way we'd worked out of making sure I was okay. And that in this day and age for people living with diabetes is like a world away because there's so much adaptability because of the insulins and the way that we manage now that the level of structure and the level of, um, yeah, the, the lack of variability that we could mm. have in our choices for diet and food was, yeah, it's frightening. And you think if you veered off the plan, John, and you veered away from it, you're literally screaming, give me a hypo, that, or, or you're going to go too high and feel awful and, and death, like, and you couldn't. And there's the other thing. When you were high, you couldn't even adjust. Mm -hmm. You couldn't even go, ah, oh, I need to have a couple of units to bring me down because you couldn't do it because you're on mixture insulin. It was just not the thing. And you were told not to adjust yeah. by the healthcare teams. So my mum used to send me on a run around the block. And, <laughs> and that was it. That was what was used to bring my blood sugar down. Do it. Has it done it? Oh, it's gone down a little bit. Not enough. Off you go. Yeah. And it was, oh. and, and that was what? was used to get my blood sugar back down yeah i'm pretty sure that when i felt a bit high or a bit um a bit like i needed to get my levels down we would use exercise as the way yeah. to do it rather than anything else because we were told not to do another injection when mm -hmm. you're on two injections a day it's like that's it and then you just have the same amounts and you just try and find the things that worked around those same amounts. When I talk about, when we're talking about it now, John, I'm like, wow, it wasn't that the biggest change that we've ever seen rather than, you know, even getting glucose monitoring in terms of yeah. the things that we wear on our arm. Because you think about how that changes your life going from all of that. Oh, it's like, restriction of life like to then the greater freedom that we were given by then the basal bolus regime it just feels a world away yeah. it feels a world away well, i remember being in secondary school and seeing my um diabetic specialist and changing over to insulin pens so instead of having to draw up my insulin so it was i, I was on act rapid and monotard and you draw up, I'm, I'm sure it was something like 11 units of the first one. Then you put it in the second bottle and it would go up. I think I'd draw it up to about 26, 28, maybe. And that, and that was it. And then all of a sudden I've got these pens. Now that on the, the plus side of the pens, oh, you've got more flexibility on the downside being a teenager. You've now got to inject four times a day. And that was how I saw it as well. How is this better for me? Now yeah. I've got to have yeah. more injections. Why is this better for me? And you just couldn't grasp why at the start anyway. Like I, yeah. they were pitching it to me. I remember them pitching it to me. I'm like, how is this better? I don't like, or oh, I didn't like injections. 
and now I've got to have more of them. How, how are you winning me over with this pitch for improving my diabetes? And it just didn't compute at the time. But obviously, knowing what we know now and how that actually played out, what a choice and what a, a change to make. But at the time, that I did feel a level of like, I don't want to do this because, yeah, you've just upped, you've like doubled my amount of injections across a year, across a day, across a week because of what? And, and it was, you needed to be sold on it and you mm. needed to see it. And you obviously, you did see it later down the line but in the moment where it's, that's being pitched you're like poor no this doesn't sound great and it meant carrying the pens on you in school so you'd have yep. to inject in school yeah the well, same well, and i had never had to inject in school before no. that and all of a sudden john when i was on it i was a teenager now yep. we know how that plays out in terms of then all of a sudden i've got to be injecting in school as a teenager when I wasn't a teenager when I first got it and I'd been on mixture insulin until I was 13, 14. So really I could do a good job at hiding it by injecting in the morning with my mom and dad and then injecting in the evening with my mom and dad for my evening meal. So most people wouldn't really see too much of my diabetes during the day, but all of a sudden we're carrying pens on us. We're needing to do an injection at lunchtime. Where would you go to inject? I used to go into the school office, um, they used to give me a space there and um, and sometimes I would go with a friend. When I was a little bit younger, I'd go with a friend to do it and they'd sort of wait or hang around. Um, what a job come... for that friend. Get out of lessons just to walk Brighty down to the office. <laughs> well, my, one of my mates and um, he, one of my best mates, well, let's, let's say my best mate, Miles, um, he used to, he, he's got a real phobia around needles, doesn't like them at all, but he would <laughs> used to, when we were, much younger so when we were sort of probably around the mixture insulin time somewhere between sort of nine to like 13 14 ish he would pinch my leg while i injected sometimes or uh, wherever i was like he would try and help in some way but he would do it and he would look away while he was doing it so he'd be like when are you done are you done are you done are you done he's like bro i've got to do the injecting it you've just got to hold my leg while i'm pinching it it was funny it was funny but like you look it's funny now looking back on it but obviously it's um you know this is just the quirks isn't it around the things that happened to us when we when we were at school and stuff but yeah people like him i had other friends that would come and do it they'd almost a bit of a shift bit of a rotab yeah let's go and help writing for it's going to you know support him for a minute and yeah i would have people come to the office and um I think as I got older, towards like 15, 16, that wasn't happening anymore. I'd just go to the office and um, to sort it out. But yeah, it was... Uh, did you have a similar situation, similar uh, place? See, I, I, had the, I was able to use our the first aid office at school. But I, I think I just got fed up of going there. And I just used to go, where's the most unhygienic place in the school? The toilet? I'll go and do it there. And you say it now you do you think about it now and go why like what, what why would i go there and do it but it was that for me it was that privacy and not in a i didn't want people knowing or was shy or embarrassed about it it was that was my way of dealing with it, it was i can go to the toilet because that's what people do they go to the toilet hmm. and i can shut the cubicle door get it out of my blazer pocket dial it up quick into the stomach, into the leg, into the arm back then. Um, 
out I go, I'm done. And that was, and, 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 and that was, that was it. I think it was, I guess maybe there was someone in my head that went, it's less obvious than, than going into the first aid office every time, every day. And there'll be some people that like your mates and stuff know why you're going in there. But at the same time, you, you, you've still got 800 other people in the school who aren't in your year group that don't know why you're going in there yeah. necessarily. And actually, I don't want them making any judgments or, or looking and going, oh, and he was going in there yesterday. Mm. Which is why I didn't so. go into a medical office. I actually had an, I, I went into the office. Yeah. Um, and I think I was so <laughs> hellbent on keeping things quiet. John, I was just like, I want as little amount of people as possible to know what I'm going through, what I have to do um, to manage this. So, yeah, I would go into an office within like the big school office, mm. be a little door, little room. I'd go in there. I'm talking about mostly high school here um, because obviously I didn't need to do it in middle school. So because I was on the mixture stuff. So, yeah, I was only would have been only a couple of years at high school where I had to do this. and then. Yeah, I would, I would just sneak in there. And then when I went on to do sixth form, I was using like you did there, the toilets, mate, which is just, you think, oh, it's not, it's awful. It's not great. But when you understand the psychology of a teenager and the fact that they really don't want to stand out, they really don't want something like diabetes to to be a, deemed as a negative and be something that can like link to... Um, that other kids can look at and, and maybe go, oh, I'm not sure about that. You are going to hide it. You are going to say absolutely nothing and, and just try and um, just mask it. And I was masking it, really. I was going into those toilets and um, just like you, just dirty cubicles because school toilets just, yeah, they've never been clean, really. Um, I mean, uh, teenage boys are just yeah the less said about what we, yeah. what we're like for hygiene probably the better and um yeah we, i was going in there mate just to to do it just to do my injections just like you were but it was because of the fear of of people really sort of seeing it and mm. trying to ask questions and getting the wrong end of the stick or me being teased you know that classic when people see a needle oh you're a drug user yeah. and all that sort of stuff which has been on repeat to be honest throughout my life and you just go i just can't be bothered with that so you, you just keep choosing to hide it and, and that's the best way when you're at school when you're mm. old enough to do your own injections that is the way to do it unfortunately yeah i think by sixth form i was if um we sat down in the dining room I would be subtly inside the blazer undoing one of my shirt buttons and then just trying to hide it with the blazer and do it so no one could actually see the pen, no one could see what I'm doing. Again, just just in terms of going, have laziness as well. So um, just going, oh, I really can't be bothered to walk all the way to the toilet just to go and do my injection just going but again not letting anyone see me do it i wouldn't mm. wouldn't be but whereas now i think it's it's completely the opposite for a lot of us and i, I don't know if that's now being adults or um 
the just that there's more knowledge of it out there. I mean, you 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 go out for something to eat, and and I've seen people injecting in restaurants um, and doing it with their pen, and, and and you just think, yeah, good for you. It's like you're you're not shy about it. You you're not embarrassed, and you're doing it in one of the cleanest places in the restaurant as well. Yeah, I, I think that's more, isn't it, about the the kind of acceptance yeah. side of it and uh, I didn't find that for a long time John like that mm. wasn't we're talking about somebody who was diagnosed at eight and didn't do an injection in a restaurant that wasn't the toilet of the restaurant until they were about 26 mate so that is an awful awful long time to be hiding it and doing yeah. making decisions which are not necessarily great ones for hygiene for injections and for um, just general care of what you should be doing with type one but I think there's um, it's nice to see that people are more accepting of it and hopefully by you know people like you John like me that can talk and share about it and and the diabetes football community where we share stories and we try and talk about it more and, and normalize it in a different setting in terms of within sport, which is a, an area where this kind of stuff has never been normalized. We've never got to a place where injections in a sporting setting have ever been part of the norm. If we can do more to encourage that as the norm, then that's going to spread, especially when sports so widely supported and so widely thought of if you can get into that environment and really shape uh, the way people think and, and really change perceptions around injections and the word diabetes, because it's so highly prestigious within society, that will spread like wildfire. And I think that's the beauty of what we're able to do with the diabetes football community. That's my belief. Anyway, I, I don't know whether you feel something similar around that John or, or you, you tend to differ on it. Yeah. Well, I think my, um, you know how much the diabetes community has done for me um my confidence uh in and around diabetes my confidence in chatting about it to people to anyone of having sensors scanners on display um and everything like that and i think that from i just remember from our first session that first time when everyone stopped after the warm-up and went and did blood sugars or that those that were lucky enough, because that was, what, 2018? Yep, 2018. The first session. So the Libras weren't on prescription nope. back then. So, so people weren't necessarily scanning. So it was seeing all these people finger-pricking and doing their results and then you see some people um having something to eat or drink because they needed to get their levels up some people injecting because they wanted their levels to go down um and just that moment where you see everyone stop and everyone is in the same boat was just that that image i've got and um, will be with me forever that, that seeing people doing that and, and that was almost like a, a light bulb moment of going this is it this is what being a diabetic and playing sport is all about it's it's about 
not being afraid to hide it. And um, like I, I had people that I played alongside for years and they would not have even known that I was diabetic, some of them, but just through, I guess it was not wanting to be treated differently. And But I look back at it now and go, actually, I, I, I also wish I'd had more knowledge. I, I wish I'd spoken to them more about it, but I also wish I'd had more knowledge of the impact of trying to play sport with um, blood sugar levels that were, were, were too high. Um, and I, I, I just, I just don't think I was, maybe I was told and just chose to ignore it, but I, I wouldn't necessarily be testing before or at half time during a game, um, especially my sort of teenage, early 20 years, it, it was all about, right, you play, you have something at half time because your blood sugar will have dropped and that's it. And then if you feel low at full time, have something else, that's it. And I, I would have my bag would be on the side. I'd have a Lucas Aid in there. I'd put a boot bag invariably in the key or ask the keeper to put it in the net, which would have a Lucas Aid in as well. And I knew that if ever I needed something, that was there. And, and that was that that was the sort of the routine that that, that was what I did. Um every like every morning when I was packing my kit bag, it was all right, two, I need at least two bottles of Lucas Aid because one's going to be in my kit bag. And, and I mean it, it, in reality, how many games have you ever played where you've needed to have a whole bottle of Lucas Aid? Very, very few, yeah. John. Very, very yeah. few. Yeah, and, and 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 that's the the crazy thing. And again, we we talk about the changes. Look at the 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 knowledge that people have now, and the the, the idea. I mean, we, we've talked about it loads, but the idea of actually injecting insulin before a game or at half time in a game, like that, that absolutely blew my mind. Yeah. So what, what, why would anyone need to do that? Because your blood sugar is going to drop, isn't it? Surely mm. through doing the exercise and, and, and just, uh, I think just being around all those other diabetics and it being the, the chance to have those conversations and realizing that actually, do you know what? The, the adrenaline can cause that spike. We talked about it in, in Scott's podcast recently um, with, with his marathon run and, 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 and how his blood sugars i mean he, he, he's his control is incredible um and so to even hear that he was in double figures was it's like well something's clearly happened and yeah it's it's that thing of going i i wish that again i i say i probably should have listened to doctors more i think there was that um I wouldn't necessarily say it was a rebellious phase. So I was never anti being a diabetic, but I was a bit like, well, I'm going to lead as normal life as I can. And like I always did in, always did my injections, but testing my blood sugar, I was absolutely rubbish at. And I think part of that was that it would have meant carrying around uh, this meter to be able to, to do my finger pricks. Mm. I think, it's interesting obviously there's a couple of things in there for 
linking to to my story, John. I think the the whole testing thing, and you were talking about the knowledge of performance, you know, and how that impacted your blood glucose levels. Now I knew that my blood glucose levels impacted on my performance from quite an early age, so that did help me, if you like, to understand that I needed routine, I needed structure, and I needed to aim for particular glucose levels to play well. And that was because, obviously, I was shooting for performance, and I wanted to try and be the best I could be. And that, you know, that was my always my goal. So I was always trying to learn and try and get the routine correct and um, to reduce the chances of it being down to my diabetes if I was to have a bad game. Now, obviously, there were games where I did have a bad game because of my diabetes, and I never never shared that. I always just took it on the chin and just went, all right, everybody thinks I had a bad game today. That's fair enough, but I know what it's for or how it happened, and it was because of my diabetes. And I would never tell anyone that it was because of my diabetes, but it was. Um, and it kind of, I think from that point of view, I, I'd learned so much about how to approach game day scenarios that from doing trial and error from maybe getting it wrong as well at times that I, I tried to as I as I grew older embed that into my life whenever I had football so but that meant then John what about the rest of the week now mm. that's where I wasn't quite so good because I wasn't as focus if you like on the rest of my performance I was just focused on what I was doing for football and how I wanted to play well at football because football mattered to me that maybe the rest of the time I wasn't quite as strict on the blood glucose testing or I wasn't quite as strict on getting my glucose levels right which in hindsight obviously I would have loved to have changed but I was also a teenager trying to find my way in life and you know I'm trying to fit in and it was hard and those things are hard when you clearly have a condition which you haven't quite found yourself comfortable enough to talk about. So, yeah, uh, looking back now, obviously, I would have, I would, I probably would have changed that element. But I was aware, I think, of how um, glucose levels affected performance. I knew almost how to get structure and manipulate that. But I also wish, John, that football had made me feel more comfortable um, to talk about it and to share it. And I think this is a large part of what I hope to do now with the diabetes football community and what I'm sure you want to achieve as well is that the sport hasn't made it easy for us. Um, it, we talk about, obviously, we're living with a hidden disability and we have to play mainstream sport because there isn't, you know, a, apart from our version, you know, what we've created, there isn't a diabetic version of football or futsal. Only the one that we've created here in the UK and obviously Dia Euro, which was created before us. So when you look at then the governing body and when you look at then how to integrate into sport, there is this part where football was just not set up to support us in, in that way. Um, and because we've done a good job at sort of hiding in plain sight, John, over a long period of time, we maybe haven't helped ourselves at times either. I think maybe if I'd have spoken about it and shared it a bit more, we might have had a more conversations my teams might have been a bit more open to it but ultimately John that is because the sport made me feel that way or society made me feel that way about yeah. my condition I was you know in an environment which is sport and performance and it's about elitism the picture of health now if I didn't have that picture in my mind of what the 
of what health looked like and that actually I could be potentially, um, you know, not picked or because my condition was in the way. If I didn't have that image in my mind, or then I wouldn't have made some of those decisions. So I think this, the, we have to consider that we could have done a little bit more, but also I believe the sport, and this might not just be football, but I think the sport could have done a, a bit more for us growing up to help us you know, feel a little bit more comfortable to talk about our, our stories and maybe our, some of our challenges and struggles with our, with our diabetes. Do you think that's anything to do with um, like role models and, and people playing the sport? I mean, you, we, we've talked about it enough times, but Sir Gary Mabbott, while I was growing up, the only diabetic, there was, there was a guy at Middlesbrough, Alan Kernigan, as well who was much lesser known um and he never really put himself out there um that's no no criticism to him um but you, you but i wonder never... why john why? yeah we, you know we, yeah. We, you say he didn't put himself out there we've probably just touched on a couple of reasons as to potentially why he didn't put himself out there and um you know i don't want to talk on his behalf and i never would but there's some strong reasons to not share it, mm. especially at that time. And um, I'm not surprised, really. Yeah. I mean, you you, you look now at, at how many diabetics are, are out there playing, not just football, but rugby, cricket, um, rugby league. You could, I, I can name a couple in pretty much all of those sports. Um, I think that social media has got a big part of that because... It, it's highlighted it's highlighted there yeah um i think that, that the work that diabetes uk do um in terms of giving these people platforms making them ambassadors um i think that you're raising the prof profile and, and and i think that the fact that you can as a as a member of the public you can interact with them through those social media um, outlets in it and it's not just me writing Gary a letter saying happy birthday um once a year it's it's you can you can have those those things and and, and you, you see it now a, a lot of diabetics that are playing the not even the the, the top level but you, you're talking professional semi-professional level for for a lot of them they're they're happy to chat with people you see uh, the ones we've had on the on the podcast with Jack and and Ben coming on and and and, and they were they were happy to to just chat about it w weren't hiding it weren't weren't necessarily afraid to um and I think that that that's that's only a positive thing for for not not even just youngsters I think even at, at my ripe old age I, I still get inspired seeing people seeing diabetes do stuff seeing henry slade get man of the match um for england at the weekend when, when they beat tonga um and but but being able to sit there with with my boys watching it and saying you see that bandage on his arm he's got his his uh sensor under there that's why he's got that bandage on his arm and and, and knowing that's why i think you've probably hit a, a really strong point there john is that as we were growing and as we were playing, if you like, there wasn't 
enough role models that were accessible or visible to many people. So you might have known about Gary Mabbott and obviously written him a letter, but because of the way that media was... More than one Yeah, (laughs) we know that that there's a stockpile of your letters that have been sent to to Sir Gary. Um, But I think because of the way the media was, they weren't being highlighted. Uh, we couldn't access them because, dare I say it, the internet was not really a thing, John, when we were growing up. Um, what? What? The internet wasn't that... But, uh, but you, people you'll be saying there were no mobile phones next. Well, there wasn't there, even when we were a kid, John. <laughs> um, but, the, 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 um, but because you can't access and you can't show and you can't demonstrate to people what it means to live with diabetes like you've just done there perfect example of showcasing it to your children um in the example you gave because we couldn't do that through images we couldn't show it to other people we couldn't almost show to other people that there are incredible athletes role models living with our condition like us that are playing sport at the top level it it became hard to to then share it and and then for people to believe that despite your condition you could still perform at a high level because there wasn't that many for example when i was actually playing football and i was diagnosed there wasn't anybody open publicly open about living with diabetes in this country so there was a 10-year spell jump between when gary retired and when i was and literally it falls when Mm -hmm. i was diagnosed through to when i was about 18 right there was nobody publicly sharing that they live with type 1 diabetes really that i saw and that i could find because i couldn't find you know the internet was just growing and there was yeah. no um it wasn't out there so so widely available i was then i didn't have a role model if you like that was playing that was current that i could share share with other people or, or showcase to to demonstrate so i felt that hard actually that that was quite tough because i did feel a little bit alone in sport trying to push and be um going towards a performance element or trying to be knowing that i don't even really know if this is still possible because also you i was thinking to myself i knew about gary's story and gary was diagnosed whilst he was a professional and i was trying to break through as a person living with diabetes and i wasn't a professional i was trying to get in and I wondered how, you know, that kind of view would be taken of, of me whilst I was trying to push for it. So, I, and also with the way that sports science was growing, I wondered if we were just going to be phased out, you know, people with type one, because at that time, you know, you're talking like Arsene, Wen- Arsene Wenger's impact, uh, Mourinho, they were all coming in and they were all pushing this sports science element. And it was, yeah, it was quite a lot of doubt for me as to whether I could. And I might not have just been good enough, which is absolutely fine. I'll take that on the chin and I, I didn't make it because of that. But I wondered if there was, um, you know, an impact of of that as well. You know, that the people didn't see others with type one for a, a good few years there between sort of the late 90s and the early mid 2000s where there wasn't really anybody that I knew of who was the first person then that you, or sports person that, that you knew of that was diabetic? Well, it was uh, Gary. Gary Mabber. Uh, Ga- so uh, after him. So when you, you had been diagnosed, you were still playing. Who who who, did, who could you then look up to? 
I was living in the past because I only had Gary Mabbott and Sir Steve mm. Redgrave and they both retired and finished pretty much as I was diagnosed. So I hadn't, I didn't feel I had anybody to look up to until, or I'm just trying to think, I don't actually think there was any, there was really anybody until, who did I stumble across? It, this would have been into my mid twenties, John, before yeah. I sort of found, or it was put in front of me. And it would have been people like, obviously we'll joke with wine, wine him up say. now, but Stanners, like Stanners is the, the one that I've found as um as a person who then had a professional football career in this country living with type one. Now I know we have a lot of banter with him and you know we we joke and we we're all of that aside. He had a 15 year career with type one diabetes. Um is that is that a picture of him I can see on your wall behind you as well? <laughs> no he hasn't made he hasn't made it quite to the uh the appearance on my wall but um he was one of the ones. Jordan Morris was another one that I yeah. came across. But I'm not coming across these till I'm in my mid 20s, John. So if you think mm. about that impact that it probably had on me, it was, I felt I was alone, you know, pushing for performance, being one of none <laughs> that yeah. were trying to go for it. Now, that is until obviously we we go full circle. I go on my journey individually and and get to where I wanted to get to in terms of uh, sport, futsal, football, do reasonably well out of that. But then we find more of these stories than through the diabetes football community. And, and I know it's something that, that you get embarrassed by and, and, and try and play down a bit, but I think I've seen some of the messages that you get as well and, and, and what an inspiration you are for, for a, a lot of these youngsters. Um, and I think it's not just the, uh, I use the phrase youngsters, but it, it's not just the youngsters. I know there's, there's lads who are, who are part of the community who look up to you and, and, and can see what you've achieved in spite of being diabetic or having been gifted with the, oh, what do I want to say? Well, okay, with, with having been gifted with the, the life-changing condition that is diabetes and having seen you manage it, seen that, it absolutely does not hold you back and, and, and seeing what, what you've been able to achieve in a, in a sporting career with diabetes. I think that's, and, but I think again, we, we mentioned it earlier, but how um, accessible people are. And, and, and I know again, we, we joke about your, well, I joke about it, your, your blue tick, but being able to, to use that yeah. and people seeing and, Someone um, mentioned it the, the other week about that they, they Googled f- football diabetes and, and, and came across your account as well and, and got in touch with you and um, you were able to, to get them on board. It's, um, yeah, I, I think it's, there's, there's so much potential for, for what we can do as the diabetes football community and not just it not just being about being big celebrities such as yourself um knew <laughs> <laughs> uh, something like that would be said but, <laughs> but I, I think that, that, that seeing and, and when we get the messages saying um from parents especially saying can we come and watch one of your training sessions and, and i know it's something that we talked quite passionately about before 
lock the first lockdown uh, getting these children along and how absolutely incredible it would be for these youngsters to to see 10 15 20 um men playing football and 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 now on on the back of that we've got the women's team set up as well and and uh, when we we saw how incredible their um instagram live was last week um and and just the the comments on there the questions on there the the inspiration that they're going to provide to to young girls who might be diabetic and and want to still have a life being able to play sport yeah and you know just to um reference obviously the point you made about myself i think and this is what I've always tried to put across in everything that we've done as well as the diabetes football community. I felt as I, as I shared a minute ago about being alone, like there wasn't any role models for me to talk to. I actually felt that everything that I would do or try and do, I, if I achieved anything whilst living with diabetes, um, I wanted to be accessible. I wanted to make sure that, if I was going to be perceived or my story would be perceived as maybe that word inspirational, or it could provide comfort or support for somebody else living with the condition. I always wanted to make sure if I was in that position to help others by being somebody that they may look up to or, or may take comfort from their story, that I was accessible. And that is really important to me as an individual, which is why I will respond. I will try and make sure I connect with people, um, whether, you know, whether it helps or, or whether it just signposts, you know, I try to make sure I, I have time to do that. And then that is just throughout what we do in the diabetes football community. That is like almost our unwritten rule is that we are open. We talk, we share, we are accessible for as many people as we can be accessible for. And that is only going to help the environments that we create in the future. I think that's why it's been so successful in terms of bringing people together is people feel that straight from the off, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, you come in and you just feel like you're part of something and you don't feel that anybody is, you know, um, looked on any differently for what they've done or what they achieve or or where they are in life, their occupation, their, you know, it doesn't matter. It, what matters is we're just trying to help each other. And I think that's what's really shone through and, and it continues to shine through in the way that now the women's teams grow in, the way that we grow our projects, uh, the way that we approach situations, bringing in kids to hopefully watch future sessions. Also, hopefully in the future, bringing in kids to, um, have their own sessions as we we continue to grow and, and you know recover after the pandemic and some of the projects that we want to do and I think it's it's really important to me that we we always maintain that as one of our our key principles really is to to sort of ensure that no matter where we are who we are what we do we're always available for people that need us that's i think that's exactly it and with um world diabetes day coming up 14th of november this coming sunday what does what does that mean to you um in terms of 
being a diabetic in terms of TDFC or do you just see it as um, another day and, and, and your mission to keep inspiring, educating is, is just going to just keeps on going every day anyway? I think that is true. That is something that will continue regardless of the day. We, we go about our business the way that we want to work in terms of diabetes football community with that idea and that philosophy, no matter what day, what time, what year we're in, that's always going to be the approach is that we want to educate. We want to support, we want to provide participation opportunities. We want to ensure that those living with a condition get to enjoy football in the way that they want to. And obviously raise awareness through football of what it's like to live with, with diabetes. So we can help educate society more widely and change perceptions, stigma, etc. So those sorts of things are there regardless. But what is important with World Diabetes Day is this is almost like a pass that you don't get given easily to really put lots of information out and be supported more widely than just the community itself you've got an opportunity on world diabetes day to engage with organizations and other that are outside of the word diabetes and they will support it that's important because that raises awareness that that gets a message out further than just within the diabetes community that we exist that's what I see for sort of Diabetes Awareness Month and World Diabetes Day, which is unique and special, is that you get more backing and more support for anything you put out around World Diabetes Day. You know, you'll get newspapers which cover it. You'll get me media that's not normally interested in the word diabetes. They're in, in, in amongst it, wanting to share stories, wanting to talk to people about the condition because it is that. It, like I call it the free pass to share and, and, um, and organizations are encouraged to engage in days like this and months like this, which showcase conditions and um, showcase important aspects of those conditions, which normally aren't newsworthy. If you, they're not normally things that are going to be talking about in mainstream media, but because there is a day, in the year completely focused on the word diabetes it's like a, everyone becomes interested because that's our day and that's an opportunity to talk about the word diabetes so i see it as that john i don't know how you see it but that that for me is it's really important because of that yeah i, I i'm with you on that i think you um you have lots of different charities lots of different organizations and you have like your sport relief, comic relief, children in need. Um, and, and like you said, it's that, it's that one day where you can tell your, like everyone will listen to your story. And I, I just, I think there'll be so many people putting out stories this Sunday. Um, and just, I think this all, the inspiration that, that it can give to, to so many people um, just by hearing someone else's story. And I think, again, we, we touched on earlier with the, the, the growth of social media over the years that 
five, 10, 15 years ago, you wouldn't have really, like if there was a World Diabetes Day, you wouldn't have known about it. But now with, with there, you can, you can post stuff in your stories and people are, people are going to interact with you and, and just raising the profile. And I think giving people that platform to be able to say, yeah, do you know what? I'm diabetic. I'm proud of it. Look at what I'm achieving. It is not easy. And I think that that it needs to be a key message for people. It can be absolutely horrendous some days. Um, and, and, and you hear horror stories of, of from people and it, it can it can absolutely get you down if, if you if your blood sugar is going high low and, and and you've got no idea why and, and you're trying everything you do to get back in range and nothing is working and and you, you can it, it can it, it can really get you down and i think giving people that platform to to just be honest and say yeah do you know what and and if someone else reads that who is struggling themselves and they can go do you know what i'm glad i'm not alone or someone looking at it going do you know what one of my mates is diabetic i need to actually take this more seriously i need to realize that it's not just a case of oh you just have to inject every time you eat and that's fine i think yeah. it's i think it's to the opportunity like you say to to raise the profile and, and raise awareness of the condition and that it is a lot more challenging than people get give it credit and also saying well done to every diabetic out there who is living their life who is not letting it hold them back and through all the the ups and the downs the fact is that you're still going. You might have days when you don't want to. You might have days when you absolutely resent it. You might have days when you don't even register that, that, that you've got it because your your day's so normal. But praising and and saying well done to those people who are managing to live their lives with it. I think that's that's one of the key things. Yeah, it's um, it feels like a celebration of living with diabetes that's the word and that is one of the key aspects for me is that we we celebrate who we are what we're all about and we get to raise awareness all in one day which is you know we joked about it at the start about it being as good a day as christmas but for us that live with such a challenging existence on a day-to-day basis for us to get a pass really to really talk and celebrate who we are share what we're about how much of the challenge we go through and to feel supported on that day it's a massive day for us and i think it it really should be recognized as if not christmas to us it's our one of our one of our top days across the year for sure and um obviously we get well behind it at the diabetes football community it's um something i encourage everybody in the general diabetes community as well to really get behind and talk openly and share. I think actually for me, it was the first day or the first period diabetes awareness month and world diabetes day was the first time I really talked about my condition in 2016, John. So, you know, five years ago, I'd never really shared it and world diabetes day and diabetes awareness month 
it it allowed me to it felt like the right time to talk and, and share my story and at the time it was about me you know conquering my summit if you like of reaching the, the Wales national futsal team but I wouldn't have felt as confident to do that if there wasn't a day dedicated to people like me which made it acceptable to share what it was like to live with my condition or made it um yeah is it acceptable i suppose it mm -hmm. is acceptable is the right yeah. word for society to for one day allow me you know allow me that space to mm -hmm. share and that's what world diabetes day did for me it it made sure that i felt comfortable because i knew for at least one day there was a really good reason why i was sharing what it was like to live with my condition widely to the rest of my community if you like the people that i was around um to society if they came across what i was posting so that for me is sums up the ethos and and the the approach that we take for for world diabetes day and um I hope that those who have listened to this podcast today, John, have been able to enjoy our musings over what we've been through in terms of our stories. We've certainly gone through uh, an awful lot in terms of our background and some of the challenges we faced as a, as a child and some of those um, difficulties in terms of sport as well and also the good bits as well. Hopefully people have been able to enjoy um where we're going now with the diabetes football community as well as, as an as an example and also um the joy of world diabetes day as obviously this is the, this episode is there dedicated to sort of remembering and acknowledging and we didn't even mention villa once brighty and you know what john that is probably just as well oh, we've run out of time we've run out of time oh uh, look at the time until um, the next one until the next one we uh We'll leave you all there, but thank you so much to everyone that's joined in for our World Diabetes Day special, and we will catch you on the next show. Enjoy celebrating World Diabetes Day. Well, that's it for this episode and we just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has tuned in and don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on whichever platform you're listening to us on and whilst you're there if you could rate and review us that will help us and the show to reach more people. Whilst if you'd like to get in contact with us about any ideas or thoughts for the show send us an email about the diabetes dugout to the diabetes football community at gmail.com or head to the website www.thediabetesfootballcommunity.com for more information about our project. Thanks for joining us and tune in next time for more stories, inspiration and information about diabetes in football.